Alright, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open it to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. We, uh, we've been reading through the book of Acts pr- primarily, it seems like, at least the storyline uh, from the book of Acts in the New Testament in our Bible reading plan. And as we've been going, we've kind of taken some little detours throughout the timeline, depending on chronologically where some of the letters in the New Testament fit as we're looking through, uh, in particular, some of the missionary journeys of Paul and kind of where he ends up, or at least close to what many people um, assume timeline-wise, where Paul ended up. So if you've been reading uh, with us as of today, you should have been, you should have read, if, if you've done your reading for today, you would have read through Acts chapter 19, but also, you've read through the book of James, through Galatians, and uh, through First and Second Thessalonians. And so, uh, a lot of time has been covered, a lot of events have been covered, and so I wrestled a little bit about uh, where we might end up or where we might land tonight, and I've landed on a passage at the end of First Thessalonians. Now, just to give us a little idea from our readings in First Thessalonians, Paul has told the church at Thessalonica on multiple occasions... To abstain from sin. He's told them to love one another. He's told them to mind their own affairs. He's told them to work hard. And he's told them to walk properly among outsiders. But an interesting theme that happens in the book of 1 Thessalonians is the second coming of Jesus and how he will come, as Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he will come like a thief in the night. Now, I'm not... um, We're not going to have a discussion on the second coming of Jesus. So for those of you who might have gotten excited about an end times uh, kind of discussion, I I know some of you are interested in that topic. That's not necessarily what we're going to talk about tonight. But it is going to be in the context, the writing that Paul does at the end of 1 Thessalonians, it's in the context of, or in light of, Jesus coming back again. As a matter of fact, he told them to remember that they belong to the light, not to the darkness, and must, in his words, encourage one another and build one another up. And so as I was preparing for our Bible study time tonight, all I could think about was this theme in 1 Thessalonians that Jesus will return for his own. He will return to defeat the devil and set up his kingdom here on earth. And the thought kept coming through my mind, what will we be doing when Jesus returns? And as I was thinking about it, you may see this funny little picture up here, but as I was thinking about it, I couldn't help but think about living like Sonic. Now, not just in the sense that Sonic is a a mythical hedgehog who had powers from another planet. Like, I I, I know there's some some, uh, maybe weird connections there. But my son in particular, Josiah, me me too though, when I was a kid, I played Sonic video games. There weren't Sonic movies that I could remember, but they did come out with a cartoon later in my life. I didn't watch it, for those of you who might think I did, but I didn't. But since they've been coming out with the new Sonic movies, my son also plays Sonic video games. And so we, in particular, like the new Sonic movies. Also, just for me, just so you know this about me, I'm not saying I approve of everything that Jim Carrey stands for, but I will tell you I love Jim Carrey as an actor. I can quote almost everything from him from every movie that he's been in, and yes, I know that's not necessarily something to brag about, but in the new Sonic movies, Jim Carrey is the bad guy, and I don't care if Jim Carrey's the good guy, if he's a side note, or if he's the bad guy. If he's in it, 
I'm pretty much in it as well. And so just side note for you, I think that Jim Carrey is the best bad guy uh, that there is out there. And so it makes the movie a little bit better. But the reason why this came to mind is because in the second movie, toward the beginning of it, if you haven't seen it, that's okay. But there's this moment where Sonic's parents are going to a wedding. And the wedding's in Hawaii, and it's really cool. Sonic has these rings. It's just a part of his story. The rings allow him to travel to different space and stuff like that. And so instead of them going on an airplane, he opens up a portal with one of the rings, and they pretty much step from their living room into Hawaii. So I know, right? That's how the movie works, okay? But it's kind of interesting. But what's funny is Sonic is left at his house for multiple days by himself. Now, here's what you have to know about Sonic. Not only is he this mythical creature that's from another planet that doesn't exist, I'm with you, but in his life, he's like barely a teenager, okay? So imagine some of you have had teenagers, some of you have teenagers, some of us are having some that will be teenagers, so just imagine for a second, okay, you are going to leave your 13, 14-year-old son at the house for multiple days by themselves. What do you think you're going to come home to? Nothing, all right? I heard nothing, which is hilarious, right? Like, that's the scene that has to be built up in your mind as a parent. Like, some of you out there are thinking, not in a million years would I have left my 13 or 14-year-old son at home by himself for multiple days, right? Well, they decide to do that. Now, listen, it's like minutes that they've been gone, and the dad calls to check in on Sonic to see how things are going. It really hasn't been very long. But in the movie... It's enough time for Sonic to destroy everything in the house. I mean, there's food everywhere. The dog's like licking the wall. He's got a pool inside the house at that point, so there's water all over the place. Like, it's an absolute mess, just like we would assume it would be with a teenager who's left at home. But what's funny about Sonic is he gets a phone call, and it's his dad. And in the mere seconds that the phone rings a couple of times, Sonic, because here's what we know, he's incredibly fast. He runs all around the house and everything looks like it did before they ever left so that when he opens up the video call, it looks like nothing had ever happened. And I thought to myself, how many of us, if we knew Jesus is ringing the phone, he wants a glimpse into our lives today, right? The video call comes through. It's from heaven. Jesus wants to check in to see what your life looks like. How many of us in that moment are looking like Sonic, running around like crazy people, trying to make it look as good as it possibly can? All I could think about was the times that my mom asked me to do one thing, and then I heard the door shut in the driveway and realized, oh no, I hadn't done the one thing she left me with, right? Or now in my life, that still happens, but it's Kayla. And it's like, oh, <laughs> she told me to turn the oven on three hours ago, and I totally forgot. So she gets home, I hurried up and did it, and I'm like, I don't know why that thing's not warmed up by now. There must be something wrong with this oven, right? I, now, all those things are funny, right? The movie Sonic, you know, it's, it's goofy, it's funny, it's silly, whatever. But it made me think about 1 Thessalonians 5 in the context of the second coming of Jesus. He's been... Paul's been writing to the church about what will happen when Jesus returns. None of us have any idea when that will be. And so Paul's writing to make sure that they're living as Jesus desires until he returns. Now, if all of us knew that Jesus was coming back tonight, 
it would change a lot of what we do. We've all seen those movies over the years where the kids throw in a party and the mom and dad come home one day early from their trip, right? I wasn't expecting you to be home so early. In other words, I would have had all this cleaned up and back where it was supposed to be before you walked in the door. But surprise, here I am. If we knew Jesus was coming back tonight, it would certainly change the way in which we were living right now. But we don't. And so for most of us, we keep thinking, we'll get that tomorrow, right? We'll straighten that up before tomorrow. We'll get that cleaned up before tomorrow. And we just keep thinking somewhere in the distant future, Jesus will return, and by then, everything will be good. But if we knew He was coming back tonight, it would change everything. And here's what kept going through my mind. Paul helps the church at Thessalonica and us. Right? Like he's writing to that church, but, but God is certainly writing to us. He's writing to us to help us know what we can be doing in order to avoid this problem. In other words, how are we living in the present in light of the future? We don't know when he's coming back, but we know that he is. We know what we need to be doing until he does. The question is this simple. How are we living in the present in light of the future? And I really do think, I think in 1 Thessalonians 5, just in a few verses, I think it brings out some questions that are important for us to ask ourselves. Now the first one is a little bit uncomfortable for me. This is it. How well do I love my leaders? How well do I love my leaders? Now you may be thinking, Danny, this is a little... This is a little weird for you to be talking about how much we should love you, right? Well, I'm really not trying to, but here's what Paul writes. 1 Thessalonians 5, look at verse 12. Let's start there. He says, we ask you, now don't forget, this is all in the context of Jesus coming back. You don't know when, like a thief in the night, but you better be ready, he's coming. What should we be doing? He goes, well, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, Paul's talking specifically in this context, spiritual leadership. And so this question comes to mind as we read through what he's talking about is, how do I love my leaders? And how can we love our leaders better? And so a couple things to think about from this. The first one is this one. How do I personally, how do I acknowledge the spiritual leaders that God has placed over my life. Now, this could be your pastor. It's the awkward part, right? This could be some spiritual teacher. This could be a, a, a preacher from the past or an evangelist that spoke that may have changed your life forever. This could be a, a, a Sunday school leader. This could be a mentor of some kind. This could be some person who's discipling you. This is any form of spiritual leadership that God has placed over your life. And I want you to think about this question. In, in light of the future, how am I living today in love of my leaders. How am I acknowledging them before God? Now here's why this is so important. Because the church, you may not know this, although you do, the church is not a dictatorship, nor is it a democracy. Now I know we may forget that sometimes, but the church is not ran by me, 
And it is not ran by the mob. It's not a dictatorship. It's not a democracy. It's what we call a theocracy. You say, Danny, what do you mean? God is in charge of his church. That is what is unique to the setting of Israel. That is what is unique to God's church. We do have a king. You might not be able to see him, but he is just as real as any other king. His kingdom may not be here. It may be from another world, but we submit to him. And all of this belongs to that guy, to God, the greatest king, the Lord of Lords, right? He said, hey, why is that so significant? Because it's God who calls and anoints everyone, or calls and anoints every leader, and everyone else is to follow that particular leadership. Now, I promise, I'm not trying to be self-serving, but here's what I do want you to get a picture of. You say, Danny, you're saying that because you want us to do whatever you say. I promise you that's not the case. What I am trying to get you to see is this. I did not wake up one day and go, you know what? I want to go to South Tillow, Mississippi, and I want to be the pastor of First Baptist Church. I don't, is it, let me Google, is there a First Baptist Church South? Okay, I want to go there, and I want to pastor that church for however long God sees fit, and I want, no, no, listen, I did not wake up one day thinking that. Evan Wilson did not wake up thinking that. Corey Jeffcoat did not wake up thinking that. Here's what happened. God orchestrated those events he ordained the purpose behind us being here. He called us through the leadership of this church, and he said, Danny Boudreaux, I want you to be my spiritual leader who leads at First Baptist Church, South Hill. And I said, Lord, I'm not sure what that word even means. Matter of fact, all I can keep thinking of is, where is Saltillo? <laughs> God directed our paths and we followed him here. We desire nothing more than to be obedient to him. Now here's where the acknowledgement comes in. Paul writes, respect those who labor among you. Now the word for respect is interesting. It means recognizing, acknowledging, appreciating, and value. The word literally means in its most basic form to know. All right, now think about this as far as your spiritual leaders. Think about the word to know. How well do you know your leaders? You say, Danny, what do you mean? Do you know their heart? Do you know their passion? Do you know their hard work? Do you know their commitment? Do you know their sacrifice on behalf of the local church? Do you know what happens every day? as they strive to be faithful to the Lord to make every other person in this church happy? Do you know what they go through, what they do, what they lay on the line every single day? Do you know what they hear? Do you know what is said to them? Do you know what happens when they leave this office? Do you know them? The word can mean to take an interest in. Let me ask you something, friends. Listen, Paul's writing... In light of Jesus coming back, he's thinking about the elders at the church at Thessalonica. He's thinking about the elders in Ephesus, in Galatia. He's thinking about James, the great pastor in Jerusalem. He's thinking about all those who are serving and shepherding the flocks of all these churches that have been planted. And he's thinking, listen, Jesus will come back while you're waiting. How well do you love your leaders? Do you even take an interest? 
in their lives. How well do you know your staff? Do you know what Evan has to deal with every week? Do you know his stress and pressure to serve as God desires? Do you know what Corey has to deal with every week? Do you know his stress and pressure to serve as God desires? By the way, the word labor, I know you may not think this, and that's okay. We're, we're okay with that. I know, I know I don't work with my hands. I know I don't have a lot of calluses. I know I don't get real dirty most days, although I'm always sweaty, so that really doesn't maybe apply to me as much. I know you may think my office is cozy. I know you may think that I sit in a cushioned chair most of the time. And listen, all of those things are true. I don't disagree with any of that. But Paul uses a word here that I don't want us to miss. The word is labor. Here's what that word means in English. It means to toil. He has in mind the hard work of breaking up something that doesn't want to be broken up so that God can produce in it something that it never wanted to be produced. Now think about this for, the sec- for a second. In, in the perspective of your leaders, all right, you know you better than anybody else. And guess what? You know that person across from you too, right? You got some thoughts about the people in this room. Here's what we all know. We're not perfect. As a matter of fact, a lot of us are like some old hard ground that it takes a little bit of work to till up. You know what I'm saying? There's some toil that's involved as we stand side by side working together. Can I tell you something, friends? Your staff is constantly seeking after God to know the best way to toil and till and break up and and get the soil ready for what God wants to produce in His people. I know it may not look like it at times, but the work of a spiritual leader is not easy work. The idea of labor is hard and strenuous. There is zero room for laziness. As a matter of fact, I was reading about this and somebody made the comparison that when Moses finally wore himself out and he finally let go of some of his responsibilities, in Exodus chapter 18, it said that it took 70 men to do what he was doing alone. Now, I'm not Moses. It would not take 70 men. But I just think it's an interesting comparison to think about for a moment what your spiritual leaders do and how much they carry, and maybe step aside for a moment and ask yourself this question, how much do I love my leaders? And specifically, how much do I acknowledge my leaders? Do you take an interest in their lives? Let me show you this one too, because this, this kind of brings it up as well. Think about it this way. When you think about how well do I love my leaders, how do I not only acknowledge them, how do I appreciate them? We've got to hurry up. Danny, you're spending way too much time on this. I know. Look at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 13. Paul continues. He says, Not only are you to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. By the way, admonish means to instruct, to caution, advise, counsel against, to, to, to remind, to urge to a duty, right? Not only that, but he says in verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. How do I appreciate my spiritual leaders? Paul goes on to say that they should be regarded highly, not because they're great people, by the way. Don't mistake why they're regarded highly. It's not because Danny Boudreaux is anything special. 
It's not because Evan is the greatest worship leader God's ever planted on the It's not because Corey is the number one youth pastor in the world and he can't ever get any better. He can never be held accountable. He can never be questioned. He, no, no, it's not any of this. They are to be held in high esteem. Why? Because of their work. They have the highest honors. Paul uses the word Love, he uses the word agape, by the way, which means unconditional, a love without limits. Listen, I love the way the church held Peter and John in the highest esteem, even though the religious leaders of their day knew them as unlearned and ignorant men. Like, according to the world, it was like, who cares about what they do, right? According to the church, they were some of the greatest guys that they ever knew. As a matter of fact, I went to William Carey University. I'll never forget hearing a story about when William Carey was aboard a ship on his way to India, he was surrounded by several of his peers that were diplomats. They were high British officials who ruled the Indian subcontinent. They were, they were the big wigs, and he's just on a boat sitting next to them. He was looked upon by everybody on the ship as a nobody, and it says, it's recorded, one snobbish individual sneered at the missionary. Here's what he said. Just a shoemaker, aren't you, Carrie? Here's what Carrie responded back to it, by the way. No, sir. I'm not even a shoemaker. I'm just a cobbler. I don't make the shoes. I just fix them when they're broken. That's what Carrie was saying back. I can't tell you the name of a single person that was on that ship, but the whole church honors a man by the name of William Carey. Say, Danny, why is that significant? Your staff has the greatest privilege in the world. Mm -hmm. They get to introduce people to a lifelong journey with Jesus. And listen, you say, well, so do I. 100%. You know what's even more beautiful? We get to stand alongside of you fine people and we get to admonish. We get to push we get to prod. We get to challenge. We get to say, hey, let's keep going. Let's keep moving. Let's change the world. Let's, let's tell people about Jesus. Now listen, just as you're thinking for a moment, just, just you right there as you're thinking. You're thinking, man, how well do I love my leaders? How well do I, do I acknowledge them? How well do, do I appreciate them? Just think for a moment. What is the value of the spiritual leadership in this community? And when you think about where that value is for you, now think about the people who get to do it every day. And ask yourself, how well do I love my leaders? i tell you something, one of my favorite preachers, he's a guy who works for the Water Association down in Picayune, Mississippi. None of you have any idea who he is. You know what? Nobody in this world outside of his family and a few friends will ever know what his name is. But can I tell you something? The way that this particular guy was passionate and the ability he had to share God's Word always makes me realize a lot of people may think his life is wasted. Water Association, doesn't ever get out of Picky, Mississippi, zero education. Who cares about that guy, right? I can't wait to get to heaven and know how many people were impacted by him as much as I was. It's a beautiful thing, right? Ask yourself, how well do I love my leaders? Let me move on. i got so many things. We need to go. Here's the second one. 
All right, so Danny, all you're talking about is leaders. I know, self-serving. I'm done with that. Number two has nothing to do with spiritual leaders, by the way. How am I lifting up my brothers and sisters? So think about this. All of this is in light of the return of Jesus. He is coming back. While you're waiting, how well do I love my leaders? While you're waiting, how am I lifting up my brothers and sisters in Jesus. Here's what Paul says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Here he says, right? And I and we urge you. Here it is again. This is next em- emphasis. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. In light of the second coming, the return of Christ, ask yourself these questions. As it relates to my brothers and sisters in Christ, how am I admonishing the idol? How am I admonishing the idol? Why, Why are you asking? Because the Lord is coming back. This phrase deals directly with those who are disorderly, by the way. Admonish means to instruct. It carries the idea of correction through instruction. It can mean to confront. A lot of people hear this phrase and they think, oh, we need to lift... You know, we need to encourage, we need to be nice. This is not the nice statement, all right? This is the statement where Paul's looking at somebody and he's going, hey, you got some brothers and sisters who need somebody to get in their face, say, put your big boy pants on and start living the life that you claim to live. He's saying genuine, beautiful accountability. You got some brothers and sisters in your life who need this type of confrontation. You go find them and you push them to be better. By the way, we all need that in our lives. By the way, I need people in my life who are admonishing me when I am idle. But listen, there's another one. This is for the more sensitive people like I can be at times. How am I encouraging the faint-hearted? Now, this is not the confrontation moment. This is the person who needs a little bit more tenderness. You say, Danny, why should I encourage the faint-hearted? Shouldn't they just get over it? No, friends, listen. Jesus is coming back. So encourage the faint-hearted. It's a combination word, the word faint-hearted. It's made from two different Greek words. One means little, one means soul. It comes to carry the idea of those of little soul. And you say, Danny, what's Paul trying to tell us? Well, I think what he's trying to tell us is that this is the type of people who are overwhelmed with anxiety, who are deeply discouraged, who are physically or emotionally debilitated. These are the people who life has weighed down so hard on them that they don't want to get up anymore. As a matter of fact, here's the best way I can think about these two phrases, admonishing the idle and encouraging the faint-hearted. All of you have multiple kids out there. You know better than anybody, you can't discipline all of them the same, Right? You probably got that one kid that it don't matter how many times you were to kick them when they're on the ground, they do not care. They're going to turn around and say, whip me again, daddy. They're going to go around. They're going to just keep, I don't care, right? Give me a whipping. I'd rather that, right? Then you got the kid that when you raise your voice, they're in a corner acting like you beat them all the time, right? You ain't even done nothing to them. Why? Because some people need that kind of confrontation because they ain't going to hear it any other way. This is admonishing the idol. But there are others who it don't take but a little bit of a raised voice 
and they get right back on track, right? This is the encouraging the faint-hearted. There are some that need a little bit more of a push. There are others that need you to wrap your arm around them and say, come on, brother, I will help you. The question you got to ask yourself is, how am I lifting up my brothers and sisters in this equation? He goes on, look, how am I helping the weak? Think about this. Say, Danny, why are you asking us? Jesus is coming back. Who you got in your life that you know, man, I, I need to wrap my arm around. I, I, I got somebody I need, to, I need to confront. I got somebody who's weak. I need to help them. Listen, we see the world's approach to the weak. Our world buys into what we call survival of the fittest, right? We've seen this all throughout history. Probably the most famous example of this is Hitler who decided that there should be a superior race and nobody else was worthy to live it unless they were the supermen of our society, right? They had to be this. Everybody else should be nothing but mere slaves, if alive at all. This is the Roman Empire. They believed the same thing. The strongest, take it and it's yours. That's the people who make up the world. They prided themselves in the strong and didn't care for the weak. But listen to this. This is from John Phillips. He's one of my favorite commentary writers. He writes this about this phrase. Here's what he wrote. Not until Christ came did the world at large see exhibited a care and concern, regardless of religion, race, or response, for the failures and misfits of society. Christianity taught the world the value of a human life. Christianity built hospitals, asylums, and orphanages. Christianity broke the back of slavery, emancipated women, campaigned against prostitution, and fought for the repeal of unjust laws. Our modernistic society has forgotten the debt it owes to the Judeo-Christian ethic. I don't know if you know this, friends, but it was Jesus who first came and said, I'm not here to be, I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve. It was Jesus who came and said, you know what? Where are the weak people in the room? I'm here for the weak. Where are you? It was Jesus who said, it's not the well who need a doctor. It's those who are sick. I'm here for the sick ones. As a matter of fact, there's a story about Israel in 2 Samuel 15 where they were marching on to the next place to conquest. And you know what they moved by? They didn't move by the pace of the most fittest. You know what they did? They put the weakest in the front of the camp. You know what they said? They said it's at their pace that the rest of us will move. Why? Because the weak were so important. Let me ask you something, friends. When you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you think about those who are weak, who is it that the Lord is saying, who are you lifting up? You know what I think of it like? I think of it like ankle braces. When I played basketball for several years, I could never play without ankle braces. My ankles have always been weak. I don't know why, they just are. But if I put a brace on, I was perfectly fine. You know what I think Paul's saying here? He's saying that there's a bunch of people in this room who need to act like braces and help those who are weak in our midst until they can be strong. Who is it that the Lord is leading you to help? You say, Danny, why? Jesus is coming back. I love this one. How am I being patient with others' progress? Paul tells them, he says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. 
Paul calls us to be patient with everyone. We definitely find Jesus modeling this, by the way, as he is patient with each of us every day. There are always people who will be easier to get along with than others that we don't really care to be around very much. Jesus is coming back. Everyone needs to know. Think about the church as it relates to the different types of people who are confined within these walls. Let me help you picture it. You ready? Within the fellowship of the local church, we find all kinds of people. They would never be found grouped together anywhere else in society. In the fellowship of the church, doctors, lawyers, and professionals rub shoulders with plumbers, clerks, and shop hands. Cultured social socialites, sorry, let me start over. Cultured socialites sit down with farmers and fishermen. People of opposite temperament seek to work together for the cause of Christ. Converted thieves, harlots, and drug addicts fellowship with saved housewives, policemen, and athletes. Rich and poor make common calls. Young and old, wise and foolish, gifted and common are all thrown together and united by the mystical bonds of Christ. We are bound together by a common faith, the blood of Christ, and the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. We are members of Christ's body and members of one another. Now picture that for a moment. No wonder we would need to be patient. Ask yourself this question. How am I repaying evil with good? Here's what Paul goes on to say in verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Why, Danny? Jesus is coming back. Live as Jesus lived. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Jesus loved Judas as much as he loved John. Amen? He loved Annas as much as he loved Andrew. He loved Pilate as much as he loved Peter. He loved the man that spit in his face as much as the woman who washed his feet with tears. He loved the dying thief who went to paradise as much as he loved the thief who died still cursing him. Matter of fact, Peter's summary of Jesus' life was this. He went about doing good. Jesus never repaid evil for evil and neither should we. I want you to look at this list. I want you to think about the people in your life that you should be doing this to. Now, now listen to me. Danny, you just said how much we should love our leaders. Isn't that what our leaders should be doing? No, 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 friends. Listen. Paul checks up for a moment in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He addresses the church and says, how well do you love your leaders? But then he shifts gears. He's not talking about what are the elders doing in this moment. Yeah, absolutely we fit into this category, right? No, no, he's saying, hey, everybody in the church that claims Jesus, how are you admonishing the idol? How are you encouraging the faint-hearted? How are you helping the weak? How are you being patient with others' progress? How are you repaying evil with good? He's saying, hey, stop waiting for somebody else to do it. Stop pointing somebody else to go make it happen. Stop asking someone else to go do what's on your heart. Friends, listen to me. Do you know why it's on your heart? 
Because God's asking you, how are you lifting up your brothers and sisters in Jesus? Can I tell you something? He's not asking you, hey, go find your pastor and tell him to uplift your brothers and sisters. Go tell him how he can do his job better. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I put this on your heart because I want you to do this. Jesus is coming back, friends. How am I lifting up my brothers and sisters in Christ? Let me ask you this one. How am I living for Jesus? Look at verse 16. Paul writes, rejoice always. Am I joyful? Listen, most of them were experiencing persecution, but they could rejoice. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. Listen, they may have thought Paul could say this because he's not experiencing what they were experiencing. But listen, he had experienced plenty and would continue to do so. As a matter of fact, Jesus said himself, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my, uh, on my account. Listen to what Jesus tells them. Rejoice and be glad for great your reward will be in heaven. He says rejoice always. Am I joyful? Do I pray? Look at verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Do I pray? We have, we have the very throne of God open to us at all times. Whatever we want to talk about, God is there. Whenever we want to talk to Him, God is there. However we want to talk to Him, God is there. We have direct access to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at this one. Am I thankful? Watch this. Verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I don't know if you know this, but there aren't a whole lot of places where it specifically says this is the will of God. So if you're saying, Danny, what's the will of God for me in my life? Well, here's one of them. Give thanks in all circumstances. No matter the situation, there's always something to be thankful for. Now listen, this verse doesn't say be thankful for all circumstances. It says rather be thankful in all circumstances. You don't have to be thankful for the bad times, but you better be thankful during them because Jesus is still Jesus. I read this story. I told Kayla I wasn't going to share it, but I just have to. I read this story. It was a guy who was reading this verse wanted to take it to heart. So he decided he woke up that morning. He decided, you know what? In everything, I'm going to give thanks. So he was taking a, a road trip on a Greyhound bus. He was leaving Mobile. I, it doesn't say where he was going, but it was a day trip. He was going to have a good time. He got there a little bit early, and he found him a seat by the window. This is before air conditioning. So he decided, God, I'm thankful that you gave me a seat by the window so I could have a cool breeze. He said a little bit of time went by, the bus is filling up, but nobody sat next to him. The driver shut the door, he's about to pull away, and he goes, God, I'm so thankful you gave me this whole seat so I could stretch out and receive this breeze. God, you're so good, right? And the bus is about to pull away, and this larger lady runs up to the bus, and she's banging on the door. She almost missed it. She's dragging a little boy behind her. So she gets on the bus, and listen, the guy records it. He says, she passed so many empty seats and found my seat, and she plopped down right next to me. And he said, as she did, every part of her kind of became every part of me. You know what I'm saying? And so they began to enjoy some of the same space. 
He said she was sweaty from running. She smelt pretty, pretty, you know, I, I don't know the word, but it couldn't have been good. She plopped that little boy right down on top of her. He's fussing and fighting. He's throwing his legs everywhere. Several of them caught him. She's so aggravated, she starts puffing on a cigarette and blowing that in his face. And before he realized it, he just, oh, he couldn't take it anymore. He said, finally, woman calmed down, fell asleep. Little boy, he was all right. Cigarette went out. Smoke was gone. And so he's sitting there. She kind of leaned up against him sleep, you know. Smelled bad, sweaty. He's sitting there and he goes, God, what could I possibly be thankful for? And he says, I'm sitting there. And he goes, it dawned on me. At least I'm not married to her. <laughs> I know that's horrible, but listen to me. we got to find every way that we can to be thankful in all circumstances. Am I thankful? Look at this one. Does my life quench the work of the Holy Spirit? Look at verse 19. Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. The word for quench means to extinguish. It carries the idea of putting out a fire. God doesn't want us to be the cause of putting out the fire of the Spirit of God in this church, in this community, in somebody else's life. Hey, listen to me, friends. If you're one of those fire-quenching kind of people, can I tell you something? I love you, but I don't ever want to see you, all right? Find somewhere else to be. We don't want the fire quenched here. We don't want people quenching it. We want people fanning the flame, friends. Ask yourself, does my life quench the Spirit? Man, there's so many things we could say. Let's keep going, though. Do I cling to the Word? Look at verses 20 and 21. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Paul's talking about the Word of God. He's talking about the Holy Spirit illuminating truths to the apostles that they would speak to the church that has now become our completed scriptures that we can spend time in every day as God's completed revelation so that we can test everything and hold fast to what is good. Friends, as you think about how am I living for Jesus? Am I joyful? Do I pray? Am I thankful? Does my life quench the work of the Holy Spirit? Do I cling to the Word? How about this one? Do I distance myself from sin? Here's what Paul says in verse 22. He says, abstain from every form of evil. You say, Danny, what evil is he talking about? Every form. I think that means everything. Abstain means to be distant. Form means appearance. Evil is the same word that we get our English word for pornography. It means wicked. Jesus is coming back. Stay as far away from anything that might even look like wickedness. James, last week we read this from him in verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know what he means by resist? If you'll run from him as far as you can, he'll run from you. How am I living for Jesus? Let me show you this last one. This is it. How do I lean into Jesus always? Look at these last verses. Verse 23 and 24. Last two. Paul writes, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean? Jesus is coming back. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do 
Ultimately, friends, listen, I can't make myself any better. All I can do is lean into Jesus always. And as I do, as I lean into Him, right? As I remain, as I abide, as I stay close to Jesus, He's got the power to make me everything that He wants to make me. So, let me ask you something. Do you know Jesus is coming back? Do you know that right now we should be living in the present in light of the future? One day we will get to be in that glorious kingdom. One day He will return. And if we are not dead yet, it's going to be a surprise. Are our lives ready for Jesus to come back? Now I did something a little interesting. As a matter of fact, I read this this week, so I thought it would be cool. Next to each of those parts of that outline, if you've got them, there's a little blank out there. Some of you have been thinking all night, what in the world is that little blank there for? Okay? Here's what it's there for. All right? This is for you and God. All right? I don't care if you throw it away. I just want you to think about it. Okay? Using a grading scale, A to F, right? Just like school, A, B, C, D, F. A being you got this down, you could be teaching others, you could be a mentor, somebody else. And F being you're failing and you need to repent, how did you score? So listen, you wrestle with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You think about what Jesus desires from us in the present in light of the future. And I want you to process that on your own. I want you to say, God, where am I at in this process? Where am I at when it comes to loving my leaders? Where am I at when it comes to lifting up my brothers and sisters? Where am I at when it comes to leaning into Jesus always? Where am I at, God, when it comes to what you desire of my life and living for Jesus? Hey, God, where am I at when it comes to each of these things in my life? Let me just tell you something. This is a cool little just marker for you. I bet there's some things on there that you need to work on. As a matter of fact, I don't want to show you my list. It's a little embarrassing. Matter of fact, I don't have to show you my list. That's between me and God. <laughs> I want you to know something, friends. Jesus is coming back. And you know what I had to think about when I was reading 1 Thessalonians 5? Here's like, I'm grading myself. This is just me and God, by the way. He's not, the A doesn't make Jesus love you anymore. Please don't miss that, all right? The great thing is that when God sees a follower of Jesus, He sees the blood of Christ covering everything, right? Thank you, God, that you cast my sin as far as the east is from the west. Thank you. But me right now on this side of eternity, as I'm, as I'm trying to live for Jesus, I'm trying to represent Him to the world, here's what I know. He's coming back. And I don't know about you, but if He shows up in my living room, if He does a video call to me, and He looks in the background, I'm going to tell you right now, friends, I don't like what He would find. So I'm asking you to do something tonight. I'm asking you to use this. I'm asking you to straighten up the house before Mom gets home. Alright, listen, they may have been gone for a few days, okay? Jesus may have been gone for a little while, but He is coming back. And if that happened tonight, friends, what would He find from His church? I'm a little scared what He'd find from me. I beg that He'll help me repent so that I can follow Him greater. I wonder if you might need to do the same thing. 